The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report Finance, presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Mayne, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Good to see you after a month, Alan. Good to see you, Stephen. And um, here we are, it's school holidays, so it's busy in the cafe today. We have babies. There she, there she goes. We have dogs, we have dogs. been barking. We've it's got all visiting subscribers from Sydney. We have visiting subscribers from Sydney. Their children welcome, in the cafe watching to you. us. Oh, Brisbane. Brisbane. Oh, Brisbane. Brisbane. We should be selling tickets to these live he's events. Coming, he's coming even further to uh, <laughs> listen right. to us. Um, okay, so uh, first thing is, do you notice that uh, Josh Frydenberg has been made chairman of Goldman Sachs ANZ? Which I presume means that he is probably not going to go back into politics because they would have, they wouldn't make him chairman if he's going to stand again for Kuyong, uh in twenty in two years. You would think. I mean, yes. Well, the pre-selections are open for Kuyong and many of the Liberal seats. So I think Josh has very cleverly said, "Can you make me an offer?" That is suitably attractive that I won't nominate for pre-selection in oh, Kuyong. Oh, could be, yeah, that's and right. And they've gone five million fixed, potential bonus pool of another five, profit five share. Five million? Well, it, Chairman what? of Goldman Sachs Australia would be, or Asia Pacific, would be a big paying seven-figure number. So I think he's just been offered a big package. But equally, it's a well-worn path to go from running Goldman Sachs Australia to Prime Minister because that's what Malcolm Turnbull did. Yeah, that's true. So Josh that could come back, but the election after next, perhaps yeah, after is, he's made his fortune. Josh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull was running uh, Goldman Sachs first, and yeah, then pre-parliament. You know, yes, that's right. But yes. so Josh is going the other way. <laughs> so yes, anyway. I agree. I think I think he's definitely not contesting the next election, uh, and he's obviously good at his job. I mean, Goldman's obviously try before you buy, and clearly he, you know, he's actually a pretty sharp guy, and he's uh, he's going to. Be a, a, a worthwhile chairman. So well done, Josh. So did you read my column today in the New yeah, Daily? Yes, stirring populist anti-immigration sentiment. No, it was an excellent column, running the numbers on migration, housing, attacking councils unfairly. As a councillor, I'm going to have to defend attacks no, I said from that, I you said, and Dan Andrews no, attacking I said, us. I said that councils go from um, go from uh, uh, nightmare. To okay, so I'm I'm saying that Manningham is one of the okay ones, probably. Well, Not that I've ever put a development application into the Manningham yes, Council. Well, well, Dan has actually put out a press release this morning. Dan Andrews, quoting, you know, City of Yarra has only done 38 percent of applications within time, and City of Stonington has rejected almost 20 percent of all planning applications. So, He's just cherry-picking. At Manningham last year, we, we only rejected 2% of applications and we approved 92% within the statutory 60 days. Uh, and we got taken to VCAT 21 times and we won 15 times. So the judges are saying we're upholding the planning scheme right. And this is what many councils do. And Dan and Mew and others are picking on outliers to attack councils when the real issue is cost of construction, unions, the CFMEU... 
lack of labour. It's not the councils not issuing permits. It's the people not building with the permits they already have. There's endless permits out there that are dormant and not being acted upon because the economics don't stack up. Well, the developers are trying to withhold land in order to push up the price. Well, that was another thing you said this morning, which I disagree with, because, I mean, there's so many developers, Alan, you can't run a cartel to all get together and withhold supply to jack the price up. You just can't do it because there's too many ma and pa small developers all over the shop. Something's going on. It's cost of land is too high, the cost of construction is too high, and the zoning is wrong. It's not the lack of permits on the existing planning rules. It's the zoning which is wrong. In Manningham, we've got 5,500 lots above an acre which are not allowed to subdivide and you've got a single dwelling covenant and so we've got 1,400 private tennis courts in Manningham, which is crazy. So that that, uh, baby entirely agrees with you. She's not very happy about my (laughs) column at all. So you should summarise what you're arguing, basically. A flood of migration, students, etc., is jacking up housing prices and then, you know, what else are you saying? Well, I'm just looking at the... uh, I basically looked into more forensically the actual uh, immigration... uh, demand for housing that's coming from immigration because everyone's been talking a bit loosely about, you know, immigration is this and... But there's 2.4 million... uh, 2.4 people per house. Um, Also... You can't use natural. You can't use the the whole population increase because the the one hundred thousand uh, increase um, natural increase is uh, they're all babies. You know, like they don't need a house, right? So I'm arguing that the uh, the correct natural increase to use is twenty five years ago, when people are, uh, the the people born then are leaving home, and they are those people are adding to the. Uh, adding to the demand for housing now, hmm. and so I kind of did all that work and came up with the number that that uh, in the and looked at the housing completions over the past twelve months in the year of March, and the answer is a shortfall of eighty thousand. But the interesting thing is that in the la- latest months after March, immigration is increasing quite sharply, uh, and if it continues at this rate, which who knows whether it will, probably won't. Um, uh, the shortfall would be 200,000 houses. Yeah, look, the, the, the feds have opened the floodgates a little too generously post-COVID, uh, particularly in the international student cohort, although that is great business for Australia. Um, and so we're starting to see the pressures from that in congestion, full cafes, in school holidays, in Hawthorne, uh, and, uh, you know other challenges. So, but I've, I'm always nervous talking about this because the, 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 the hard right, the populist right, particularly in Europe, it's it's an anti-immigration sentiment, which is at the heart of it, like with Brexit. And people just forget, you know, in these sorts of columns like you've written, people don't throw in that Australia has the lowest population in the world in terms of people per square kilometre of arable land. So we can absolutely handle, we've got the space to handle a growing population. Uh, unlike any other country in the world, we have more capacity. So do our share. Okay. Now, uh, have you been um, standing in front of the mirror, mirror getting ready for the AGM season, Stephen, getting your your vocal cords into, uh, into shape, getting ready for it? Yes, yes, because uh, you've got to give a month's notice of the AGM. So we basically now have the full schedule for any AGM up until October 21. And I've been impressed that so far most are going for hybrids, which is, you know, you can ask unlimited questions online, you can vote online. 
Whereas last year there were more that were sort of going back to physical. And so the only sort of recalcitrant so far who've been naughty are ARB, the four-wheel drive company. They want you to drive in your four-wheel drive to the RACV club and ask questions because you can't ask them online. Commonwealth Bank's done a curious one. They're saying you can ask questions online but you can't vote online. I've, I've never seen that before. If you're going online, just do the whole thing. Don't sort of ban online voting but allow but online you have to show up, you actually have to show up to vote. Yeah, you have to show up to vote, but you can ask online questions. So normally they come together. And a hybrid AGM is online voting and online questions. That makes no sense at all. Yeah, so they, for some reason, they've turned that off. Many companies are still doing the, oh, you can watch the webcast, but of course you can't ask a question, you can't vote. So that's just, that's like watching telly and not having interac- any interaction. We want talkback radio from home at AGMs. Obviously, Qantas November 3 will be the big one. That'll, we're all looking forward to the Qantas AGM, yes. aren't we? Star on November 9, Fortescue on November 21 uh, will also be big. We've had our first uh, climate resolutions come out yesterday. Whitehaven Coal is copying a couple of uh, market forces climate resolutions. And Suncor is going too early. They're, they're, they're on the 26th of September. Now, you know why it's too early, Alan? Because their I'm, a, constitution, I'm a gog, Stephen. Their constitution says you've got to give 45 days notice when you nominate for the board, okay? So the deadline for nominating for the board was July 25, but the results didn't come out until August 9. So it's ridiculous. You shouldn't shut off nominations for the board until you've told the shareholders what you've done for the year. So they're so, going too early and they should be kicking it back another couple of months. So you've Were you going to nominate, were you? Would well, you would you have nominated? I'm going to nominate for NAB, probably. You're going to nominate for NAB? Well, because they do it too. And I've said, kick it back to January during the Aussie Open. Don't rush it before Christmas. And they've gone two, That's, two, NAB's, two fingers NAB's my bank. I don't want you on the board of NAB. That's well, my well, bank. I'll get 1%, Alan. Alan. But if I run for the board You'll and drive say, I'll the... keep running until you change <laughs> the AGM to coincide with the Aussie Open so shareholders can fly in and get a tax deduction and watch the tennis then um, we'll have good governance and a tax-efficient way of getting people to Melbourne for the Aussie Open. So anyway, I'm hoping NAB will, will move on that. But uh, look, let's, let's cover off Qantas. The AGM, I'm going to make a prediction here and now. First, Todd Sampson will be voted off the board at the Qantas AGM on November 3. But he will resign two days before the AGM and say that he's uh, been aware of feedback in the proxies and has decided to withdraw his nomination, because they never actually lose. They all walk the plank before they walk the plank before the votes are revealed. So, um, and there'll also be, there'll also be a REM strike at Qantas. But but Richard Goyd is not putting himself up for election. He is being gutless. He's hiding behind the three-year electoral cycle for directors. What do you mean? Well, so in he- the US and the UK, it's annual elections for directors. The whole board is up every year. And Treasury Wine Estates, BHP, voluntarily do this in Australia. And I said to Qantas, put yourselves up. Do best practice. But no, Goyd is hiding behind a three-year cycle. So, so, so when's he up? Not for another year or two. Right. So, um, and they've drawn straws as to who's going to get to the, you know, because one-third's got to be up. So they've drawn straws and somehow Richard missed out. So Todd Sampson has been told to walk the plank. He's going up early. And he will be defeated. Will he be the only one who's defeated? Maybe one other, but uh, he's the one I, I'm predicting will be will be closest to go. But uh, um, I mean, 
We've got a question later on about this as well with Alan Joyce selling his shares in Qantas, the $17 million of the shares. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's not a good look. But at the end of the day, um, you know, people are allowed to buy and sell shares when they like. And so I'm not as aggravated by that, even though the stock's tanked by 20%. People are accusing him of insider trading because he knew about the ACCC investigations and then he sold at 6.73 in the first week of June. Are you angry about that, Alan? I don't think it's a good look. It's not. It's, uh, the optics are all, terrible. But the optics about know. everything at Qantas are terrible. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you think Goiter's going to survive? I mean, I, everyone's calling for him to go. Uh, oh, look, I think he'll eventually have to go, won't he? I mean, really. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll wait a while. I, I, I think that – I think the point, apart from the bloodlust um, – uh, there's there is a point that you know in order for re- renewal to take place properly there needs to be a full kind of change changing of the guard at the top uh, and I think that's a fair point. Yeah, well I agree. Well I I still haven't forgiven Richard for um, agreeing to hide Gillan McLaughlin's salary as the CEO of the AFL. They used to disclose that and then he stopped. He approved Gillan's request to keep his salary secret. And in 2009, West Farmers did a massive capital raising that badly shafted retail shareholders in the way it was structured. So I never forget, Alan. So <laughs> 14 years ago, I was outraged. Never mind, never Still forgets. Am. Just bear that in mind, everyone. Yes. Let's do some questions. Now, let's start off with uh, we've got 13 questions to pile through, Alan, uh, 12 of them from blokes. So let's start with Susie. On a weekend road trip, I binged on the Money Cafe podcast. I was shocked that in three episodes there was not one question read out that was lodged by a woman. Thus, here I am adding some diversity well, to your program. I must say, Susie, that you know we much we, uh, we we we'd like to see more women put in questions. So come on, if you're a Money Cafe listener, come on. I agree. I agree. Anyway, carry on. Anyway, Susie says that one of your co-hosts, I think it was me, was challenging the disparity in property valuations compared to NTA. His theory was that asset valuations were overinflated and property owners should sell some assets to prove their value. Contrary to that, I received overweight recommendations from other reputable market analysts because of the very disparity between NTA and the current share prices. So basically, is it a buy because they're undervalued or are the valuations a crock? Now, I've done some numbers on this, Alan. So right now, Centre Group is claiming that they are worth 13.4... No, they're claiming they're worth 18.2 billion net assets, but the market cap's only 13.4. So there's a $4.8 billion gap between what the Centre Group says that Westfield Centres all over Australia are worth and what the market is valuing them at. Buy, buy. GPT claims to be worth 11.2 billion. Market says 7.9. Dexas claims to be worth 12.2 billion. Market says 7.8. Vicinity, owner of Chadston, reckons Chadston's worth 6.66 billion. And they claim to be worth 10.6 billion. Market says 7.9. So for this AGM season, hey directors, hey auditors, how do you justify this missing four, five, six billion or whatever it is? It's a good question. Was asked last time. They haven't written them down. They should be writing these things down. Uh, yeah. So, so you you reckon that 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 four or five billion dollar gap in on average is um, uh, is a real? I mean that the, well, the they're on overvalued. For, the it's been going assets on are overvalued. So, it's, it's it's more than twelve months now. So it's not just an aberration from COVID or rising interest rates. Like this is sticking. So you can't keep on saying you know. 
no problem here. But I'll give you one little contrast, Alan. So Goodman Group has a market cap of $42.6 billion, which is more than the $37 billion market cap of those four other property giants I just mentioned. And Goodman Group only claims to have net assets of $18 billion. So that's what we like, a company that doesn't cook up their yeah, valuations. That's, mad- that's madness. $42 billion They're the world's uh, biggest manager of industrial property, the world's biggest manager of industrial property, and a lot of that value is in the management rights, whereas they don't necessarily own every industrial oh, complex okay. that they manage. But but what I'm saying is that there's a they have a conservative balance sheet, the, the accounts are conservative, and, and the market says they're worth $24 billion more than what the market cap is, and the contrast with the other four is stark indeed. Indeed it be, is. They should be taking some big write-downs. Uh, Bill says, uh, Bill here again, still trying to make money. Good Typical idea. bloke. Typical bloke. So I heard a story firsthand of a guy that bucked our bank monopoly by getting a much better deal with Qatar International Bank for his home loan. I think it was legit. <laughs> Thoughts? Well, we're asked uh, to pass judgment on the sovereignty and trustworthiness of the nation of Qatar. My my, my view of banks, you know, weird banks like Qatar is um, don't give them your money, but take their money. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good advice because when you're borrowing from someone, like you know, you're right, it's, it's much less risky for you. Yeah, that's right. So, look, if you can trust Qatar, if you watch Al Jazeera, if you fly Qatar Airways. You know, they're all pretty good. They hosted the World Cup, so I would have thought you can take out a home loan from them without sure. uh, too much worry, particularly if they're underpricing our big four oligopolies. So David says, reading about Mark Burris taking Yellow Brick Road private and offering shares in a private company to existing shareholders, how does being a shareholder in a private company differ from a public company? And is it worthwhile owning shares in a private company if you only have a very small stake? Well, basically, David, whenever someone moves to delist from the ASX without offering to privatise you, without offering you to buy your shares, it's usually a pretty ordinary situation and you should resist it. And that's why the ASX requires a super majority of votes. So 75% of the the voted stock at the special meeting must approve delisting and then they must remain listed for another month after that vote so you've got time to get out. So my advice, David, would be to sell your Yellow Brick Road shares before it becomes a private company because it's much trickier to sell something which is not listed. I do think the ASX needs to watch it because they are charging quite a lot for listing now. Uh, A few people are complaining about it, including Mark Burris. Gouging monopoly. They're a gouging monopoly. So, uh, uh, And as you've been pointing out, there are a lot of delistings from takeovers that have been taking place. Uh, so, um, you know, pe- people might start delisting just because of the cost as well as being taken over. Yes. And so they'll start to, uh, you know, hollow out the hollow out the lists. Yeah, but my, my comment is if you're going to delist, buy us, don't take us into a illiquid, invisible, lacking in transparency private yeah. company land because that's not what the public punters bought into. So um, Pete says, correction to last week's podcast, about Afik and Argo, um, we said that uh, we said that they were trading at premiums to their NTA. I saw that James Thompson p- apologised about this on Twitter. Did he? He did. Someone oh. someone picked us up on Twitter, and James said, "Sorry, that was my bad." And uh, good on him. Uh, he did it. He did say that, but I didn't 
disagree with him, so I I have to wear it too. Yes, yes. Well, the stats are the latest Argo NTA is 906 pre-tax and the market is 870. So, yes, the market is trading at discount, but... The after-tax NTA, which you also have to take into account, if they liquidate the whole portfolio, they have to pay a lot of tax. So the after-tax NTA is $7.92 versus a market price of $8.70 for Argo. Well, that's obviously what we meant. Correct. So you, you, you had a you had <laughs> we a meant that. lies, damn lies and statistics excuse here, Alan. You could have just had to throw in the post-tax just... NTA and you were yeah. right. Uh. Okay. All right. So Tim wants to talk about uh, the RBA and rising rates. And Alan, you wanted to talk earlier about um, the RBA minutes, so we can cover off Tim's question. Tim's basically saying um, what things are included in the inflation calculations, and if the RBA can't control things like you know oil prices and stuff, then why does that drive uh, the interest rate and the, or the inflation calculations? So talk about that, and also what you thought about the recent RBA minutes. Well, the um, obviously, the, the headline inflation is one thing, and then the RBA tends to watch what they call core inflation or underlying inflation, um, which is where they take away the volatile items and try to look at the things that are, you know, more meaningful. I don't know. I mean, the, uh, I'm not sure it's valid, but anyway, they do it. And um, uh, the, the volatile ones tend to be fuel, mostly, energy. Um, but look, leaving that aside, the... It is true that a lot of the uh, inflation has been caused by supply issues that are completely independent to what the Reserve Bank does. The truth is that the Reserve Bank doesn't really care about that stuff, or at least it cares about it, but it can't do anything about it. So it basically has its target of 2 to 3% inflation that it wants to achieve. And it kind of doesn't really matter... Why the, reserve, yes. why the reserve? Why the? Why inflation is above the target? It kind of says, well, we've just got to get it down to the target, and the only thing they can do to achieve that is by uh, putting up interest rates to reduce demand. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what they do. I mean, I've I've recently, like last week, wrote a column, a very good column, uh, challenging the two to three percent range. The, to, the target is uh, a disaster. It's, narrow. It's too narrow, and it's kind of. You know, I mean, the big problem, the big disaster with the target was when inflation for a long period was below 2%. Um, and the the Reserve Bank cut interest rates to uh, below 2% and then 1.5% and then Phil Lowe cut the interest rates to 075 To try and get inflation up. To try to get inflation up to 2% yeah. because that's the target. But that's – it was such a, um, uh, a ridiculous, arbitrary yeah. thing to do – because, uh, you know, I don't think anyone feels like 1% to 2% inflation is a disaster that well, needs to be dealt with. I would have thought, arguably, with. that def- deflation is a good thing because it's cost of living benefit. Well, no, deflation, def- deflation is a bad thing, but low inflation is not a, not a bad thing. Deflation means uh, that the economy is going backwards. It tends to uh, get you, tend, you get into a, a cycle where people don't spend because the prices are coming down, so they withhold spending. And so you can get into a very nasty deflationary cycle, but 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 that's not what was going to happen. I mean, yeah. crikey, that wasn't going to happen. But after a period of ridiculous inflation, which we've had recently, surely it would be good if we had some deflation now to get back to where we were perhaps three or four years ago on prices. Well, what we have is another uh, bit of jargon called disinflation. Mm. And so we're in a disinflationary period of time where, you know, the overall kind of big picture influence 
on prices is down mm. because of technology and de- uh, uh, demographics. Uh, within that, there's ups and downs, but you know the the overall trend of uh, prices is down. Um, so you look. I mean, I, I think the the Reserve Bank ought to widen the the target from one to four percent. You know, and because I mean, Michelle Bullock had a speech the other day saying, you know, uh, climate change is going to be inflationary. So what are they going to do? Put up interest rates and cause a recession because of climate change? That'd be just madness. Yeah. Madness. Yeah. I'm with you. I'll second that motion. Now, okay. we'll go over to number eight with Lindsay. Um, right. Lindsay said he uh, loves the Money Cafe. He's been on a cruise in the Kimberley um, and he agrees with Alan's comments on uh, Qantas in Dubai and Tan trains. He's a very agreeable folk uh, chap, Lindsay. But now to business, is the Aurora retail entitlement offer worthwhile at $2.70? They closed at $2.79 with a hive, $2.85. Aurora said they want the cash to buy Sava Glass SAS, which is a French glass maker. Well, basically, Lindsay, um, it closes next week and um, you should just wait to see where the share price is on the day because the stock has crashed and it was priced at a 23% discount, but the stock has crashed to be trading at around the $2.70 has it crashed? Did it crash because of the offer? Yeah, because they've, they've, they're overpaid and they're issuing 59% more shares. They're so over, overpaying for this glass they're company? They're paying $2.3 for a French glass company which has been owned by private equity with limited synergies, and then they've expanded their capital base by 59%, priced it at a 23% discount, and the stock's immediately traded at a discount to that price. So that says... I've just destroyed a billion dollars in a week, basically. Now, <laughs> Rob Sindel, the chair, and you know, these are good people. So, they've, you know, as always with takeovers, the scoreboard will be checked over time, and this might be the greatest buy of all time. But in terms of whether you put more money into this at two dollars seventy, you've just got to look at the price on the closing day and weigh it up. But it's a line ball thing, so uh, I don't think they're going to be very well supported with that raising by the 45,000 retail holders. Probably got time for a couple more co- uh, questions, have we? Of course Greg? we have. Is that correct? It's been a month, Alan. We can surely get oh, a couple okay, of minutes right over on. time, can't we, Greg? Well, John says, John says, I love your analysis, keeping young young James Thompson in his place and tolerating Stephen Mayne. Well, <laughs> tolerating? Well, I do tolerate you, Stephen. Yes, not many people do, Alan. But, uh, now, John, I think we should take this as a comment which we can tolerate as a comment, I think. He basically says that Mexico ETFs can be invested using Comsex international trading accounts. Yeah, I we said were talking that. About I, that. Said, yeah. I said that, yeah, yeah. And he was commenting that it's better to use US ETFs than Australian ETFs because of uh, liquidity, which is probably a fair point, but you've obviously got to manage the currency. Well, there aren't risk. any Australian Mexican no. ETFs, so, no, you know, that's right. if you want to buy Mexico. Anyway, your turn. Yeah, all right. So um, we've got uh, Ben saying, I use an app called Superhero, which has free ETF trades to set up some dollar cost averaging. Do you think it's risky to keep putting cash into an app like Superhero? Well, I did I have a look at their website. Have had you look, looked at it? I had a look at their website and the first thing I saw was you can earn Qantas points if you trade with Superhero. So I thought, well, Qantas is such a reputable brand. They wouldn't have a dodgy counterparty in their frequent flyer program. So Superhero must be trustworthy. Uh, look, if you're just buying ETFs, of course, that should be rigid edge. I do worry about th- things that have a ridiculously grandiose name. Like, I'm not, not nervous about buying, sh- buying shares in Global Lithium at the moment, which is worth $400 million. I've heard there's some newsletter called Eureka Report. I mean, does that suggest every subscriber is going to find gold and say Eureka? So things that have a grand name, like Superhero, 
Sometimes I just couldn't be think, nervous. Oh, I just couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was under pressure. I had to come up with a name. Come on, quick, quick. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I did with Crikey. Like I wanted people to read it and say, Christ or shit or something. That's unbelievable. So we said, Crikey. Which is that's the reaction go. we want, you know, shock and horror. Did they really say that? <laughs> that's right. Uh, all right. Uh, well, um, what about Max? We got, Max is yeah, about Max councils. Is, You're all about councils. Yeah. City, I'll, I'll ask. The City of Melbourne have raised their taxes, their rates, sorry, by 3.5%, the maximum allowed. Yet somehow my rates notice has gone up 35% in the last 12 months. It would appear that the capital improved value is the driver, but we, of course it is, Max. Come on, what do you think? Jesus. <laughs> But we've made no improvements to the site with the housing index down over the past 12 months. I don't see how they can substantiate such a monstrous increase. <laughs> Obviously, I Max hope that, has well, so, a very so good problem in I'm, that his property has been massively increased in value because he obviously lives right next to a brand new train station or he's had a rezone or something's gone right for Max. The uh, maybe the city of Melbourne's making it up. No, no, no. They're the, making it up. Under They're rate capping, with Dan, Dan's rate capping that came in 2016, right, in the 10 years leading into Dan's rate capping, the average compound rate increase across Melbourne, across Victoria, was 6%. So we were pounding the ratepayers 6% every year for 10 years across the whole state. It was over the top. So Dan comes in with his rate cap, and now we just can't control it. So he just says everyone 3%, 5% maximum, below inflation, and... That is the average increase. Now, of course, then the valuations kick in and some will go up if they own property that's gone up in value and some will go down. So, Max... 35% in 12 months does seem a bit excessive. He's had a windfall. He's probably got some rezone or something's going on. But look... I'm going to defend councils, right? Like in Manningham, of you our are. land is worth sixty-seven billion. Of interest, our land is worth sixty-seven billion. <laughs> We're only taking hundred million a year in rates. It takes you six hundred and fifty years to pay the value of your house in rates. We don't have any differentials. You know, in the city of Melbourne, they charge businesses seventeen percent more than residentials. Some some lefty councils charge three hundred percent more for anyone daring to make money out of commercial or business properties. We have a flat rate. Westfield's our biggest rate payer at 3.3 million and it's terrific value and leave councils alone. Why don't we do the last question, which is asking you how to structure a question for the AGM. I think that's interesting coming up with the AGM season now. Well, Michael wants to know, how do, you, how do I structure a question for the AGM? Well, I would, uh, I mean, he hasn't given us the name of a company, so I would send in a couple of questions beforehand so that they can't say... Oh, we'll get back to you. So they, you give them a notice on a couple. And then I would have eight questions ready to go for live questions at the meeting. Because live questions are always better because otherwise you get a scripted response, right? You want to get the unscripted response. So have eight questions ready. Read the chairman's address and the CEO address at the meeting because they often announce new stuff or respond to your questions earlier. And then be flexible and ask four or five depending on the flow. And... If you want a good general question is, Chairman, what keeps you awake at night? What are the you know, what are the risks that you really worry about as we look forward with this business? That's a nice general question to get them going. Um, and then, um, yeah, just go with the flow. But be nimble. Don't go in there with your six written questions and just read them out regardless of what's happening at the meeting. Be flexible and pivot to some other topic if it's already been covered or do a follow-up to something they've said earlier. So, yeah, folks, this is... Uh, this is um very, very good advice from the the master of AGM questions, S. Main. And I must say, as we talk about 
AGMs, the, the companies that haven't yet released their AGM date are all controlled by billionaires because they're control freaks who want to minimise scrutiny. So Seven West Media, Kerry Stokes, Fox Corp, News Corp, Premier Investment, Solly Lou, Harvey Norman, Jerry Harvey, still yet to say when the meeting is, when most good companies announce it a year out, and they won't allow online questions. They'll just go, you got to turn up to my Tattersalls Club in Sydney if you're Jerry Harvey. So, you know, everyone else is largely doing hybrid meetings, which is inclusive, and just watch these recalcitrant billionaires who just hide behind a physical meeting, don't tell you the date in time so you can book your flights. They're rich enough already. They don't care. So they're the ones I'm going to target this year. Anyone doing hybrid, I'm going to say, I'm not going to punish you, punish you for making AGMs accessible. So I'm going to have maximum six questions versus 26 last year sometimes. And I'm going to fly and go and confront a few billionaires who refuse to do online agents. Are you? And I'm going to say, see you every year until you go online, Solly, and we'll see what he does. Well, that'll be good. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. So send in your questions and we'll answer it together by and email us at themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler. Founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Main, tolerated contributor at Eureka Report, etc. See you next time.